And let's turn in our Bibles uh, this morning to Acts chapter 26, page 1739. 1739 in your pew Bibles. <clears throat> and we are um, making our way toward the end of the book of Acts. And in fact, uh, this morning we're going to look at the very end of the book of Acts. So let me remind you one more time, page 1739 in your pew Bibles. <clears throat> and uh, before we actually get into the sermon this morning, what I'd like to do is, is sort of give you a bird's eye view of these, uh, of these concluding chapters of Acts. And so, spoiler alert for, uh, for, any, for most of you, we're going to talk about the end of the book before we get there, Okay. Um, hopefully most of you know how the book ends, but if you don't, <clears throat> you're going to find out. Um, these, this, the book of Acts ends really with, uh, the, the, with Paul um, getting to Jerusalem, and then from there, what happens to bring him to, uh, to Rome in the end of the book. And so chapter 22 is what we looked at last week, and that's where Paul has now traveled back to Jerusalem, He's in, the, uh, he's in the temple, and the Jews drag him out of the temple. They're so upset with him, they try to kill him. And um, this is what Pastor Young Kwong looked at, at last week. And, um, and Paul defends himself to the crowd by sharing the story of his conversion. And he tells the story again of how Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus how he fell, uh, blinded, the whole story. And so that's the second time in the book of Acts that we hear the story of Paul's conversion. From there you get to chapter 23, and the Romans are so confused about why it is that the Jews have, uh, why they hate Paul so much, why they have so much animosity toward him, that they pull together the Sanhedrin, put Paul before the Sanhedrin, and try and figure out what's going on. Um, the Sanhedrin... Um, Paul talks about the hope of the resurrection that he has in Jesus Christ, and it turns into the Hatfields against the McCoys. Um, it's the Pharisees against the Sadducees, and the whole thing blows up again, and it's like Paul is, Paul's life is at risk once more. And so from there, in chapter 24, Paul is then put on trial before the Roman governor Felix, and he must again defend himself and... Um, and declare, you know, why it is that, that he's truly, um, why his life is truly being sought. And, um, and Felix seems to be sympathetic to Paul, and yet he, uh, he lets him linger in prison for a couple of years yet. From there, we get to chapter 25, and that's where Festus takes over as Roman governor. So he takes over Felix's position. Paul appears before Festus once again. And um, then we get to chapter 26, and there Festus um, has decided, actually Paul before Festus has requested that his case be tried before Caesar. So one of the things that Festus said was, Paul, why don't you go back with me to Jerusalem and I'll try you in Jerusalem there. And Paul knew that if he did that, um, he would be put to death. He would be sentenced to death in Jerusalem. That, that Festus was really just trying to uh, make an inroad with the Jews um, be a person of influence among them. And so Paul asks and requests that he be tried before Caesar. He figures that's the only way he's going to get a fair trial. So then in chapter 26, Festus 
realizes that he can't just send Paul to Caesar without um, any charges against Paul. And so he pulls Paul into, uh, or he pulls actually King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, into the situation. And Paul has to defend himself before Festus and Agrippa. And Festus is hoping that he can actually establish some, some charges against Paul as he sends him on to Rome. At the end of that chapter, you read that both um, Festus and Agrippa look at Paul and they say, really, he, the, he doesn't deserve death, okay? But because he's appealed to Caesar, we've got to send him on. And then in chapter 27, we get that story of Paul um, boarding ship, um, and he sails for Rome, and, uh, and it's quite a trip. There's a storm, uh, there's a shipwreck, all of that. We'll, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. And, um, and then uh, we get to chapter 28, and that's the story of Paul's arrival in Rome, his life there. He's under house arrest, which basically means he's probably tied to a, a Roman soldier um, the entire time that he's there. It's probably a rotating kind of situation, but he's always with a soldier, and he spends um, two years at least um, in Rome in that situation. And, um, and that's the end of the book of, of Acts. Then I want to read to you the last verse, <clears throat> the last verse of Acts, okay? Boldly and without hindrance, Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Boldly and without hindrance, Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that that ending meets our expectations. What doesn't it tell us? What doesn't Luke tell us? He doesn't tell us what happened to Paul. So from Acts chapter 9 on, Paul has pretty much been, been Luke's main character in the book of Acts. And especially in these last chapters, we know everything about Paul. We know what he's thinking inside. We see him imprisoned. We see him defending himself before governors and kings. We see him in a shipwreck and, and all the thoughts and prayers that go through his mind. We see him finally in Rome. And then Luke just ends the book without telling us anything about how Paul's story ends. He doesn't tell us that, well, Paul actually did appear before, before Caesar, and this is how the trial went, and he was condemned or he was declared innocent. We don't hear if Paul dies or lives, and it's, quite frankly, a little disappointing. And yet, perhaps, what Luke is trying to tell us is this story isn't about Paul. It's not Paul's story. This is a story, and it always has been, about Jesus Christ, about the one who died, who rose, and who ascended into heaven, and who rules over the world and over his church. This is a story about the Holy Spirit, who is taking the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth, and it's a story about whom? It's about us. It's about the church. Paul is just one of the witnesses that the Holy Spirit enlists in this task. Paul is a member of the church of Jesus Christ, just like the rest of us are. And, and many have said we could add chapter 29, Acts chapter 29, and what it would be is our story. 
because the Holy Spirit continues the story of Jesus Christ through us. It's a story of the next man up, right? There's a lot of football going on this weekend, and that's all we hear about, right? A team's offensive line, their left guard is injured. He blows out his knee. Oh, no, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're not going to survive without that guy. Well, yes, we are, the coach says. We're just going to plug somebody else in, and it's a matter of the next man up next person up, we'll say. All right? And this is the story that Luke is telling us. Okay, you've heard Paul's story, but it hasn't ended because really it's a story of the next person up. And that person is all of us. We are the witnesses to Jesus Christ, to his death, his resurrection, his ascension. This is a story now about us. And so what I want to do with you now is, <clears throat> is through that lens, let's go back and look at some of these texts that we just summarized briefly. And um, there we want to go back to Acts 26. Okay, we'll begin reading there with verse 9. So here Paul is now defending himself to Festus and to Agrippa, and he's in the middle of telling his story, the account of, of his life. Okay? Pick up with verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another. Thank you, Dan. You are a blessing. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, About noon, O king, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. This is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, 
that the Christ would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So friends, what I'd like to focus on this morning in particular is this verse 17 and 18, because here I think is contained the message for the next man up, the message that we are to carry as witnesses um, for Jesus Christ. So if you look at those verses, Jesus here says to Paul, Paul, I am sending you to them. To who? He's sending them to his own people, the Jews, and also to the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them, what does he say? To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Now, I want to pause here because what's going on here is Jesus is describing for us this process of conversion, which we have talked about before, and that's what we're talking about again this morning. And what Jesus is saying is he's clarifying for us the human condition, okay? The human condition. And if we are to be witnesses for Christ, friends, we have to understand what this human condition really is. And the human condition is that we are blind. We are living in darkness and we are enslaved to Satan. Okay, we are blind in darkness and enslaved. Our situation is not one in which sin is sort of symptomatic or episodic. Like sin is is one little episode over here that can be contained and therefore wiped out and conquered. That's not what sin is in Jesus' mind. That's not what he's telling us. You know, I've, I've been struggling with a, a cold for I don't know how many weeks now, and I know that many of you are in that same boat. And so I've been drinking Dayquil and NyQuil like it's water. When you do that, you do it with the understanding that this is not going to heal me, right? This is supposed to help with my symptoms. It's supposed to dry up my... Uh, my sinuses, it's supposed to, um, you know, squelch my cough, those types of things, and, and it does a pretty good job of that. But doctors will tell you, it's not going to heal you, right? Your favorite words, virus. There's nothing you can do about a virus. You just live with it. That's our condition. Our condition is the virus. Our symptoms are things that we can treat. And friends, we often act like sin in our lives And sin in the lives of those around us is a symptom. And therefore, it should be and can be defeated. I was angry this morning, and so I kicked the dog. Well, why did you do that? When I'm angry, I don't kick the dog. What what am I saying, really? That I'm kind of a, a better person than you are. I've got more strength, more willpower. I can I can handle sin. Why can't you? And friends, that's often the way we look at unbelievers, non-Christians. Like, why can't they just get their lives in order? Why do they talk the way that they do? Why do they do the things that they do? They must not be very smart. They must not have a lot of self-control. They're not like me at all, because I've kind of defeated those things in my life. 
What Jesus is saying, friends, is that our problem is not symptomatic. It's not these little symptoms that that flare up here and there in our lives. Our problem is a condition. We are sinners who are prone to sin. And friends, we cannot be lifted out of that condition through willpower. Someone has to open our eyes. Someone has to release us from our slavery. And the only one that can do that is God. I I heard a little joke this week, and we hear things like this a lot this time of year, right, when we're all making resolutions. It goes like this. I gave up eating chocolate for a week. Now that's a testimony to our own willpower, isn't it? I gave up eating chocolate for a whole week. But, you can punctuate that sentence just a little bit differently and it turns everything on its head. I gave up eating chocolate for a week. Right? That's probably more of us in that camp. I made a resolution and now I gave up and I've been eating chocolate for a week. That's not a testimony to our willpower. That's a testimony to our lack of willpower. That's a testimony to our human condition, friends. To our human condition, which is a condition in which we are sinners. We don't control sin. Sin controls us. And when we look at people around us and when we look at ourselves, we have to understand that about the whole world, the whole human condition. That we can't lift ourselves up out of this condition. We can't reason our way out of sin. You don't look down on other people because they are stuck in sin. You have compassion on them. Just like our Lord has compassion on us. When you look at the governor Felix, okay, who Paul defends himself before in chapter 24, you get to the end of that account, and Paul has just defended himself, he's declared the gospel, and then you expect, you expect Felix to say, praise God, I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ. That's not what he says. In fact, what you read is that, well, Felix keeps inviting Paul back so that he can listen to him more, and then you get this little note in verse 26, and it says, and, and Felix was hoping that Paul would make him a bribe. So what's going on there is, is Paul, in his defense, has told Felix that the reason he came to Jerusalem was to bring an offering with him for the poor. And Felix, you can hear his mind, the gears are turning. Paul's got resources, Paul's got money. If I keep him in prison long enough and keep bringing him back, one of these times he's going to say, hey, can I grease the skids here, little Felix? Can I, you know, do something for you to, to get myself out of prison? And Felix, you begin to see, is a man who, for one, he's trying to create more influence among the Jews, okay? If he, if he keeps Paul in prison, he has, he, has, he has the Jews in his hand, in his pocket, right? And at the same time, he's thinking, I can get a little money, a little cash out of Paul at the same time. And you begin to see that that Felix is a man who, yes, he hears the gospel, but he's also caught in this web of sin that has, that has controlled him and contained him his whole life. And so it's not, that, it's not that Felix just needs to hear the gospel one more time, again and again, 
What Felix needs is for God to open his eyes. And so, as carriers, as witnesses of this message, we have to understand that. That people are caught in sin. They're living in darkness. And therefore, one of the things we have to do as witnesses is continue to pray that God will open eyes. You know, there, a long time ago in this church, <clears throat> we were still worshiping in the other uh, sanctuary. We had a jar up in front of the church. And in that jar, all of us had put names of people that we were praying for, that we wanted Christ to bring to himself. We don't have that jar anymore. I hope you still have those names, and I hope you're still praying for them. When we built this new sanctuary, before we covered these floors with carpet and the walls with paint, I've told you this before, we wrote the names of family members and friends and people we work with and said we're going to be praying for these people, that God draws them to Christ. And I think that's an attitude that we cannot lose, friends. This is a miracle, a Holy Spirit miracle that someone gives their life to Christ. Jesus has to draw them. He's got to bring them out of darkness and into the light. It's something we pray for, and then it's something we work for, we witness to. It's a condition, okay? The next step, what's the next step? Jesus says, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. <clears throat> now notice here what Jesus is saying. Salvation is something we receive, right? It's not something we earn. It's not something we merit. It's not something we qualify ourselves for, and yet that's often the way we treat it. We look at people around us, and before we even share the gospel, we sort of, we sort of do this uh, equation in our minds, are they qualified? Do you think they're qualified for God to forgive them? Are they qualified to be like us? Do you think they'll really ever change? We don't qualify for salvation. It's a gift. We receive it. We receive forgiveness. It's something received. Okay? It's as simple as that. We can't earn it, and no one else can earn it. And so we can't treat people like they must earn it. Anyone can receive. Not everyone can earn, but anyone can receive. Is that how our minds work? When we're building relationships with people, when we're witnessing to them, that anyone can receive. But now notice what Jesus says. We receive forgiveness, <clears throat> but that's not where he stops. We receive forgiveness and we also receive a place a place among those who are sanctified. Okay? A place among those who are sanctified. Now just think about that for a moment. Because oftentimes 
we think that being a Christian is we receive forgiveness. And that's where we stop. Well, I received forgiveness through Jesus Christ and through His cross, and that's it. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's not what Jesus says. He says, yes, we receive forgiveness, but we also receive a place. A place among those who are sanctified. Now, a place among. Who is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the church. We receive a place among our fellow believers. When God becomes our Father, all of a sudden we have a whole bunch of brothers and sisters. You're sitting among them now. We receive a place among, and that is so important. We cannot be Christians without the church. We can receive forgiveness, yes, but now we have to receive our place as well. We have to be among the body of Christ. Now we need to learn to listen and not just talk. Now we need to learn to be responsible for others, not just for myself. Now we need to learn to extend forgiveness and not just receive it. Now we need to learn how to be accountable to others. Now we need to receive the teaching of others, the correction of others, and we need to offer those things to others as well. This is a part of what we receive. This is a part of our salvation. We have a place among Friends, what we did this morning when we baptized these two young children, they found their place among us. It's not just an empty ritual that we go through. This is Jesus saying, this is what I intend for all of you, that you have a place among. You don't make it as a solo Christian in this world. You will never become like Jesus Christ in that way. You receive forgiveness. Yes, praise the Lord. And now we receive a place. But let's look at what else Jesus says about that. We find a place among the sanctified. Now let's think about that little word sanctified for a moment, okay? It's in the past tense. Sanctified. When we think of that word sanctification, we have to think of two things, okay? It's both a status and it's a process. And we often think of that process, that God is making us holy, and that is a process, but there's also a status that's involved. When God declares us forgiven of our sins, he places us among a people who have the status now of children of God. We have the status of Christ, his own son. We are righteous, we are holy, we are pure. We have that status. So does everyone around us. It's sort of like being married, right? 
when we stand up here and pledge our lives to each other, we become married. We're in the state of matrimony. I'm now a husband. You may be a wife. That's our status. And then we learn after, those, after that commitment, we learn what it means to be a husband and to be a wife. And we learn that the rest of our lives, right? Think of winning the lottery, okay? You win the lottery and your status is changed. You go from the state of poverty to the state of wealth and riches. Your status is actually changed. But we all know how the, how the lottery can work, right? You can take your payments in a lump sum or you could take it one month at a time. And your wealth just keeps on coming. But your status has changed. And we have to understand that our status is sanctified. We are holy in God. We are in a new place, a new state. We have to learn to live out that state. At the same time, the Holy Spirit is moving in us and teaching us what it means to be holy. Now think of this, friends, <clears throat> in terms of <clears throat> the people that we are witnessing to. And think of this in terms of our own lives. This is, uh, has to do with what Pastor Young Kwong was talking about last Sunday. He mentioned how in the church there are still, there are still all sorts of barriers that we erect, right? Barriers that we erect from acceptance in Jesus Christ into that full acceptance as fellow believers among us, right? There are barriers that we set up. For whatever reason, we say, you know, if you're not quite like me, you're not quite accepted. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Is that right or is that wrong? Friends, I think it has a lot to do with our view of sanctification. When people are accepted into the family of God by Jesus Christ, they have the status now, we all have that status of children of God. All have the status of being holy. So what does that mean? That means we should accept one another. No questions asked. We should accept one another. What do we often do, however, instead? Well, we, we tend to do this. We look at people's actions and where they're not living up to what Christ demands. And we look at their thought processes and where they're not quite changed like we want them to be changed. And we set up a wall. We say, well, you're not quite there yet. You got, you got a ways to go yet. And what we're forgetting, friends, <clears throat> is that sanctification is a process. In fact, what we are doing is we are distrusting the Holy Spirit. We don't trust that the Holy Spirit is still changing people and can still complete the project of taking them from entrance into the family of God to finished product. That's sobering thought. Why would that be? Why would it be that we wouldn't trust, trust people to the Holy Spirit that He is going to finish what He promised He would do? Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we trust that? Well, here's one reason we wouldn't. is because we don't see it happening in our own lives and in the lives of the people who are already in the church now. 
And if, we, if we're not experiencing that Holy Spirit change in our own lives, we're not going to trust that it's going to happen in the lives of others. Are we changing, friends, day by day, month by month, year by year? Are we becoming more and more like Jesus Christ? Because when that kind of change is happening, when we see the Holy Spirit and we see evidence of the Spirit day after day, every Sunday when we see that evidence of the Spirit that, yes, He's changing us, He's molding us, He's sending us out as His witnesses, then when anyone comes in, we look at them with that same optimism that the Holy Spirit can change them as well. Why is it that at times we don't see ourselves changing? Again, what does Jesus say? <clears throat> we receive forgiveness and we receive a place among the sanctified. How? By faith in Him. By faith in Him. Let's be clear, this is a faith not in his teaching that he was a good teacher and I have to do what he says, although he was a great teacher. It isn't just faith that he was a good example for us and we should follow his example. It's faith in what he has done. Verse 23 talks about his death, his suffering, and his resurrection. He has done it all. He has done it all. And so we receive forgiveness. We receive a place because of what He has done. And what we have to do then is accept that place and let go of the place that we have taken by our own strength and accomplished by our own will and our own knowledge and our own intellect and all of that. And friends, that's what we have to remember, that we have sort of a place. We've, we've, we've found a place in this world, a place where we're respected, right? In fact, in this room, we have, most of us, I would say just about all of us, have found a pretty good place in this world. And we could be quite satisfied with that. But that's what we have done. And if you look at Paul's life and as he tells his story, as he, as he bears witness, he says again and again, you know, this is what I used to be. I was self-made man. And, and I had achieved pretty much everything I could achieve. And what I'd become was actually someone who was trying to kill God and to kill off his church. And so Paul says, I had to put that away. I had to put that behind me, and I had to learn to grow into the person that Jesus made me to be. He made me to be like Christ. Totally different objective. Totally different goal. Being like Christ is not necessarily being respected in this world. It's not necessarily being first, being a person of influence. It's being like Christ, someone who is willing to suffer and to die 
so that they would know that God loves them. That's the question. Are we becoming like that person? That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to make us into. That's what we want to see every Sunday. Peter, you're becoming more like Jesus. And you're becoming more like Jesus. Isn't it amazing what the Holy Spirit is doing? That's what we want to say. And he can do it to anyone. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, may we carry that message to the world, to our families, to our friends, to our co-workers, that the Holy Spirit can make any one of us into a person like Jesus if we are willing to receive forgiveness, if we are willing to receive a place among God's people, among those who are sanctified and those who are being sanctified, it's available to any of us, and it's real, and it will happen. Give us that faith Lord, in Jesus, not in ourselves, not in what we can do, but give us faith in what you have done and what you are doing among us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.